Ephesus. All right, so open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing in Ephesians. Uh, we're luxuriating in this long, run-on sentence of Paul's from 3 to 14. So when you're looking at it, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles under your seats in front of you. This is one run-on sentence. It's called the most monstrosity of a Greek sentence in ancient literature. Nobody has written a Greek sentence like this, according to all the scholars. So we're, the way that I'm kind of structuring it, just so you have some textual terrain, so you know how I'm cutting with the text. Uh, we're going to look at the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how this thing is being organized for me. Um, so, so far, we've looked at the work of the Father. Now we've moved into the work of the Son, and then next week we're probably going to get into the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's how we're going to begin. There's a recent article from the Wall Street Journal Friday, to be exact, <laughs> that reports a rapidly growing trend in Hollywood and also among the social media influencers and fashion designers and wellness gurus. Uh, it's called forest bathing. Have you heard of this? How many of you have heard of this? Seriously. There was only two in the first service. Okay, so there's one here. All right, good. So I, I feel really good about myself, like I'm on top of it and you're not. Here's the deal. For the uninitiated, the article points out that forest bathing does not involve water, just in case you were wondering. What does it involve? Well, according to forest bather expert Sarah Becker, age 46, she describes her first time of forest bathing this way. She says, you walk into a forest, her first time was some forest out in San Francisco. You're usually with a group of people, her first time was like 12 other people. Uh, you walk barefoot, and you walk in silence. So you walk barefoot and you walk in silence until you find a tree. And this is where everything gets really exciting because this is the forest bathing. Then, quote, we stood or sat by the tree <clears throat> and we asked its permission to touch it or connect with it. It was really beautiful, end quote. Now, I'm really not trying to be a jerk. I really am not. So please hear me. I, I generally have a question. I just generally want to know, why is it that all the trees always say yes? I mean, surely there's at least one tree in all the times in this forest bathing that one tree says, no, I'm sorry, you just can't touch me. I'm not going to let you connect with me. But why is it that, that every tree says, yes, you may touch me and you may connect with me? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a growing phenomenon? I mean, it, evidently, it really is a big deal. They listed a lot of the people that are involved and how it's sweeping the powerful and the elite and how it's hitting the famous and the celebrities and how everyone seems to be moving on this trend. And it's very popular and it comes in all kinds of for forms. Airbnbs are now doing it. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Well, Another expert says it this way, a forest bathing expert, Lucy Ann Phillips. She's 34. She says, this is why it's so popular. This is why it's sweeping the country so far in the elite circles, which means it'll eventually get to us, you know, what, in about six months. Quote, the whole goal is to strip away any noise, pollution, sound pollution, scent pollution, so that you can get back to your most naked, authentic self. Do you hear that? This is incredible. She goes on to say, the whole purpose of my work is to get back into your totally authentic, pre-programmed self. In other words, she's saying, we're trying to get back to who we are. Who are you? 
Everybody's struggling to find out who they are. Everybody's struggling to grasp for an intact identity. Everybody's looking for a solid self that's so solid it can carry the weight of your life and your relationships. Everyone is looking and struggling for a solid self. Ephesians says, this is who you are. This is how you get a solid self. This is how you get an intact identity. And it's a game changer. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us see the heights and the wonders, the treasures, the riches, the glory of this passage. It's like climbing Everest. It's certainly the Mount Everest of Ephesians. It's certainly breathtaking, and the views and the vistas uh, give life and give salvation, and so give a solid self. So, Lord, would you give it? We ask in your name, amen. So the question Ephesians is always asking is this, who are you? You know, I am fill in the blank. So far, Ephesians 1 through 14 says your most naked, authentic self is you're chosen, not forsaken. So far, Ephesians 1, 
1 through 14 says your totally authentic pre-programmed self is you're redeemed, not condemned. And so the question now for us is this. This is great information. This might be new information. It might be old information for you. But the question is, so what? I mean, what difference does it make for you to know that you're chosen, not forsaken? To know that you're redeemed, not condemned? What difference does it make? How does that form structure yourself, your identity? How does these gospel truths impact your relationships? How do they help you deal with life events? The answer from the whole book of Ephesians is really, really simple, and it's kind of the theme of what we're doing here. The answer is they give you a solid self. They give you an intact identity. They give you a true self. In other words, they don't give you a collapsed self. They don't give you a self that's sinking, a self that's diminishing, a self that's becoming a nothing, a non-existent person. How many folks struggle today with depression and how many folks struggle today with their identity? How many of us struggle with this sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness because it touches right at the core of who you are because the self is collapsing. It's like the self is moving towards being formless and void like back before the creation of the world. It's like a decreative reality. So a solid self is not a collapsed self. And the Ephesians is going to give us a solid self, a self that is so solid it can hold your relationships the weight of them. It can hold the realities of your life, the good things and the bad things. It gives you an intact, solid person. Not an anxious person. A collapsed self is an anxious person because we're anxious about fearing a collapse. And you fear collapse from everything. You fear collapse. Your performance can make yourself collapse. If you have a bad performance, you're collapsing. We fear people. People have the power to collapse us. Bad life events have the power to collapse us. So a collapsed self is an anxious self. It's always looking, fearing for a collapse from anything and everything. It's also a split self. You might see some of, some, which is so true, I mean, Scripture's reality, right? So it's going to push into how people work. It's going to push into psychology. It's going to push into those barriers. So you might hear things like a split self. Well, what's a split self? Well, you're a split self. A collapsed self is a split self because it's getting definition for itself over here, and then it's being defined by this, and it's being defined by that. It's splitting itself in so many different ways because there's so many ways to try to find an identity and so many ways to try to get a solid self. That's why we're experiencing total identity confusion today. Complete personality chaos today. Nobody knows who this pre-programmed, authentic self is. Everybody's trying to find it. Everybody's hunting and searching for a solid self. And Ephesians says, knowing that you're chosen, not forsaken, knowing that you're redeemed and not condemned actually gives it to you. 
That's how powerful this stuff is. So here's the deal. What we're looking at in Ephesians can actually make you confident without pride and humble without feeling inferior. One theologian puts it this way. It creates a sense of being self-forgetful. You know what that means? In other words, you know what life is? If you notice when you're most happy, when you are most filled with joy, when you are most loving, when you are most engaged in your work, when you're most engaged on the athletic field, when you're most engaged at music, when you're most engaged with school, is when you're not thinking about yourself. You're wrapped up in whatever it is that you're doing. That's why we look at stories to sweep us away. That's why we look at movies to sweep us away. That's why, along with every person in the planet, I'm watching that game tonight. The moments of being self-forgetful are free. It's the stuff of life. Ephesians wants to make you a self-forgetful person. It wants to give you the freedom of self-forgetfulness. One theologian puts it this way. It means self-forgetfulness means you're not thinking too highly of yourself. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're thinking too lowly of yourself. It just means you're not thinking of yourself. Do you see the difference? Let's take performance. Let's take your performance. Let's take um, athletics, music, school, work, home, being a good parent, mother, father, whatever, child, church, serving people, helping people, wanting to be a loving person. Let's take your performance. What if you have a good performance in those areas? What if you succeed in those areas? You know what the freedom of self-forgetfulness says? It says, that's great. Your success is just a success. You don't have to think too highly of yourself. And let's say you have a bad performance. You don't live up to your expectations on the ball field, at the plate, on the in the music hall, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you enjoy, and you don't live up to your expectations. You know what happens in the freedom of self-forgetfulness? You know what happens when you have a solid self? The failure is failure. It doesn't push you to think too low of yourself. So success doesn't push you to think too high of yourself. Failure doesn't cause you to think too low of yourself. You're free from thinking about yourself. You know what this means? Well, then why do you do athletics and why do you do music? Why do you do, like, literature? Why do you do work? Why do we do church? Why do we do ministry? You know why? <laughs> you know what Ephesians says? For the sheer love of it. For the sheer joy of it. Because God has packed potencies of joy and life in these good things and when you're free to not think about yourself, you're free to actually handle them rightly and love them for the love of it. To love your work, to love hitting the ball with a bat. I loved putting my head in the chest of another human being and taking them down. There's nothing like that feeling. I'm sorry if you don't get that, but man... Those of you that play the game know exactly what I'm talking about. There is something, right? The freedom of self-forgetfulness enables you to actually do it for the sheer love of it, not because you're desperately trying to find yourself. Find a solid self. 
So, that's great, Jeff. I mean, I get that. I'd love that too. Yeah, I would too. So, but how do we get that? I mean, how do you get a solid self? How do you actually, how do you actually get chosen, not forsaken, which we looked at when we first started the book a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at redeemed, not condemned. I am these things. This is what Ephesians says about us. How do you get those things so that they actually are part of you being a solid self? That they actually make you a solid self? How does that happen? So that you actually experience it. You actually feel it. You actually get it deep into your bones, and it actually starts taking this collapsed person called you, and all of a sudden, you start becoming solid. How does that happen? Today, we're going to answer that. I want you to look at verse 7, because verse 7 is going to give you the wrong answer first. It's saying, here's how it doesn't happen, but here's how we think it happens. The wrong answer is we think that we're going to get a solid self. We think we're going to actually experience these realities, enter into them, by thinking it's up to us, right? Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God is in the grammar. He's a Greek geek too. Look at according to. According to means on the basis of. It means because of. In other words, this is what I'm about ready to tell you. According to, I'm about ready to tell you the fountain from which redemption comes from. In other words, when you see that you're redeemed, not condemned, here's the power behind it. Here's the cause of it. Here's what moves it. Here's why it exists. You ready? Keep reading. The riches of his grace. In other words, behind these incredible gospel truths like chosen, not forsaken, redeemed, not condemned, behind them stands grace alone, not human effort, not human attainment, not human achievement but the riches, literal wealth, the overabundance of grace. Paul is literally saying you're chosen, not forsaken, because of the rich activity of God for you, not your activity. Paul is saying, listen, you're redeemed, not condemned. Here's the power source behind it. Here's what drives it is the inexhaustible doing of God, not your doing. He is basically painting a picture in, in that seven of the extravagant, active grace of God over everything, under everything, around everything, moving everything, behind everything, driving everything. But... Paul knows, because he's writing this to you and me, he's writing it to real human beings, he knows, though, that we're addicted to self-effort. We're addicted to relying on ourselves. We're addicted to thinking the way that this actually becomes real in my life is that it's up to me. This lady named Lauren Larkin, she explains our addiction. She says, it seems first nature to think everything's up to us. Even the problems we face are too big. Every day presents tons of things that warrant worry or concern, from catching the subway to getting dinner ready, and we get in over our heads. But innately, we believe we must break through it. We must put our heads down and push through it. Holy cow, that's convicting to me. 
And some of us, you know, you're saying, Jeff, I don't know why you're saying this. I, I actually agree with you. I get that. I understand the text. When you become a Christian, you know, when you're chosen, not forsaken, you're redeemed, not condemned. Of course that's all grace. Of course God does it all. I know that I don't do anything. I want to know, though, now that I'm a Christian, what do I do? I want to know now that I'm a Christian, what's supposed to happen? Does God do something? I do something? Are we in a partnership? How does this thing work? How does this work? How do I achieve or experience the solid self? How do I experience the freedom of self-forgetfulness? I mean, is it up to me? Because it feels like it's up to me. And if I listen real carefully to everybody around me, even in the church, it's certainly everyone saying it's up to me. So please, help me. As a Christian, living the Christian life and the Christian experience, how, how does it happen? How do I grow? How do I change? How does this become real? Well, we're going to follow the logic of 7 into verse 8. So you might want to do something, you know, it's, it's kind of old today. I don't even know if we have them, but the thing called books. And you just open it up. You can grab a book or a Bible if you need it. Look at verse 7. It says, so again, we're asking this question, what's behind redemption from condemnation. Verse 7 answers the riches of His grace. Everybody got that? According to. So behind your being redeemed, not condemned, which we looked at last week, the power of that, what's behind it is the riches of God's grace. Everybody with me? Okay, now let's go into verse 8. Which? What's which pointing back to? Which which is which pointing to? Which is pointing to the riches of God's grace? So it goes like this. Which, the riches of God's grace, He lavished upon us. Are you with me? Now we're moving into the Christian life. Now we're moving into the Christian experience. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And just to continue to go, I'm going to give you the little translation. That is making known to us the mystery of his will. Now for Paul, the mystery, the mystery for Paul, when he talks about the mystery, it's always Jesus and the salvation. The mystery for Paul is always the gospel. In other words, the gospel, Jesus and his salvation, is the storyline of the whole Bible. And in the Old Testament, it felt like a mystery because it was the acorn by which the oak tree was eventually coming. But you initially, in the Bible, you just saw the acorn. You actually didn't see the acorn because it was under the ground. But then all of a sudden, throughout Old Testament history, you start seeing, you start seeing a sprout come from the ground. And this thing starts growing and growing, and eventually it turns into a big old oak tree, which is Jesus that's the whole Bible, going from, oak tree, going from acorn to oak tree. And so the mystery is these places where you don't necessarily fully get the picture of it until he shows up. That's the mystery. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying that that mystery of Jesus is infinite. It's this diamond that has so many cuts on it. And you take one diamond and you spin it and you say, look at that cut. And it'll take your breath away. It'll give you life. It'll reach you and renew you. And what he's doing, he's now turning it. And he's saying that God actually makes that infinite mystery of Jesus and the infinite depths and wonders of that salvation, he makes known to you. In other words, behind the Christian life, behind you growing in wisdom and insight into your redemption, 
growing in wisdom and insight, like, okay, I'm, rede- I'm redeemed, not condemned. You start growing in wisdom and insight and what that means and what that looks like and the infinite treasures of it, what's behind that, what's behind making known to you the mysteries of the gospel, as a Christian, what's behind that, Paul is saying, is the sheer grace of God. Nowhere in here are you and I doing anything so far. Everybody's going to freak out when we get to chapter 4 and and now we're doing a lot of stuff. But chapter 4 is built on chapter 1, 2, and 3. So here's the deal. I want you to watch how this works. Can you find that phrase in all wisdom and insight? Find it in, in, uh, I think it's in verse, where is it? 8. Then find making known to us. Those Two phrases mean the same thing. They're just going to give you one diamond, and they're going to give you one cut called wisdom and insight. Turn it, give you another cut called making known to us. Are you with me? Okay, so here's what's happening. In all wisdom and insight means that God is making Jesus and the infinite riches of his salvation. In other words, his, his doing, his dying, his rising, not your doing, not your dying, not your rising. His achievement, his attainment, not your achievement, your attainment. His work, his performance, not your work, your performance. He's saying the wonders of that. Wisdom and insight means that Jesus, God, is making that reality clear to your mind, wisdom, and real to your heart, insight. Now jump down to making known to us. This means that God is taking Jesus and his salvation. It's just another way of saying the same thing. And he's going to make it known to you, which knowing in the Bible means he's going to cause it to pass into your soul. You're going to experience it. You're going to be like, I'm getting a solid self. I actually believe this. I actually, it's becoming more clear to my mind and more real to my heart. And I'm actually feeling the collapsed me coming together and getting a solid me to support the weight of life. Jonathan Edwards describes what's happening in this verse this way. It's a famous illustration to use for hunting. He basically was saying this. He said, it goes like this. uh, I can tell you new and true information about honey. Maybe some things you don't know about honey, right? I could tell you, I could define its properties for you. I could break down the science of tasting it. You know, the chemical reactions and whatever goes on in the mouth and how it reacts to the honey when it hits the tongue and what it does. I can even tell you what it tastes like or describe for you. Well, it tastes kind of like it's sweet. And it's sweet. And you know what sweet tastes like? It's just sweet, you know, not like sugar, but, but sort of like sugar, but it's sweet. You know, like ice cream, but it's not like ice cream because ice cream, it's, it's sweet. Like, you know what you, I'm saying? But you don't know honey. And you can't know the sweetness of honey until you taste it. And Paul is saying, God makes you taste it. He puts the honey in your heart. He puts the honey on your tongue. He puts the honey into your relationships. 
taste it. And that changes everything. And now Christianity is not just new or true information. It's real. God lavishes upon you. That's the language of the text. God makes known to you. That's the language of the text. Here's our language. He gives clarity to your mind. He gives realness to your heart. He pushes it, passes it into your soul. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am redeemed, not condemned. And a solid self comes together. God makes us taste it. You're saying, though, but Jeff, but what do we do? I mean, I mean, we do, don't we do something? Well, it's fascinating. What we do is actually, it's, it's underneath the structure of the text. Do you see this? What we do is what Paul's doing. Watch what he does. What is he doing in verses 1 through 14? What is he doing? He's preaching the gospel to you. So what he's saying is, hear the gospel. Because this gospel has divine life and divine power in it. This gospel is the power of God to reach you. And so as Luther was here, he'd say, listen, beat the gospel into your stupid head. Read it. Hear it. Think about it. Reflect on it. Take the gospel, Jesus and his salvation. Turn it. Look at the different words that describe what Jesus has done, like justification. These, you know, all these words that sound like upper respiratory diseases, which I'm wondering if I have one. Right? Justification, propitiation. What is this stuff? Right? Definitive sanctification, sacrifice, reconciliation, redemption. What do these words mean? What they are is they are loaded with power and they're loaded with life. And when you hear them and you grasp them, they release life all over you. They release Jesus all over you. You taste the honey. And what Paul is doing, he knows that the way in which hearts are reached is by him actually speaking people back to life again by giving them the gospel. Because this is what's crazy in Romans. What Paul says is he says, when you hear the gospel, Jesus shows up. He walks on the wind of good news right into your life, right into your relationships. So what do you do? You get addicted to the gospel. You start seeing when good advice starts eclipsing good news. You start understanding the difference between law and gospel, and you're like, mm, no, I'm, I'm feeding on that gospel. The other thing you do, look what happens in verse 15. This is going to take a complete change. You know what he's doing in verse 15? He starts praying. This is incredible. He gives you the gospel, and then 15 through 23, he prays that you get what he just said. So what do you do? Well, one, you, you want to get addicted to the gospel. Two, you want to pray like, oh, God, help me see the wonders of the gospel. Help me see the wonders of you. Help me understand your grace. Give me the honey. Make it clear to my mind, real to my heart. You see what's happening here? There's no false, 
There's no false dichotomy between the head and the heart. When the Bible puts the head and the heart together, they're one thing. You've got a heart or an inner person or a soul. It's one thing. But when it thinks, it's called the mind. When it feels, it's called the heart. When it trusts, it's called the heart. And what Paul is saying, he's like saying, listen, you want to ask God, you want to, you want to think hard about the gospel. Think hard it's not irrational. Christianity is not irrational. Christianity is not irrational. It's super rational. It's thinking hard about what God says. And then it's not this, you get the head and then you're just this little egghead with no heart. Who's that? The tin man? Who, who has no heart? Tin man, I think, right? Tin man. Okay. It's not Christianity or, or whatever we're talking about. It's not a t- spiritual tin man. No false dichotomy. It has heart. It has heat. It has experience. Clarity to the mind. Realness to the heart. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says, if you're going to get it real to your heart, if you're going to taste the honey, it comes by praying, asking God to do it. Hearing the gospel of Jesus showing up. Okay? All right. Let's end this way. But I know many of you are thinking about it, so I'm just going to say it. But what about that thing in your life? Come on. That fear that won't go away. That regret that, you, that won't leave you alone. It keeps hounding you, biting at you, this nagging regret. I have, a, I have a nagging regret. I, I mean, I, I, I started realizing I still have a nightmare about when I was a sophomore and I was wrestling for the state championship. And I lost to the dude. Why do I still regret that? That's just weird, right? But it's enough of a regret that it enters into my sleep and comes out of my subconscious and hounds me like, you, you loser, you lost it, you had it. Do you have that? Do you have a regret? That thing? Did you not, your life not turn out the way you wanted it to? Did you, you didn't parent the way you wanted to? You didn't attain the things you thought you were going to do in your job? You don't have the relationship you thought you were going to have? What's your regret? What's that loss you can't get over? What's that relationship that's a constant struggle, a constant disappointment, a constant source of pain? What's that tantrum you keep throwing? What's that sin? What about that thing? You know what Jesus says? You know what, you know what God says to you and me? He says verse 10. Look at verse 10. What we're told in verse 10 is that God, it takes all the things that we just mentioned, he takes them all and he unites them to Jesus, and Jesus takes them. All things God unites in him. What things? All things. Okay, well, what about that, that regret? Is, is that included in all? I don't know. All things. That loss, all things. That fear, all things. That sin, all things. That brokenness, all things. 
he unites to Jesus. All things in heaven, all things on earth. You know what this means? This means he will heal that thing. He will heal it. Not you. He will, we're going to see later in Romans, he will subdue and subject that thing to him to heal it and to heal you. That's absolutely breathtaking. So here we go. Who are you? So far we've seen two things, right? This is our third, and it's coming right from verses 7 through 10. Who are you? Here's the answer. I am, fill in the blank, right? I am, according to this passage, I am healing, not incurable. I'm finally becoming myself, not a collapsed self. 